I am John Seiper, pastor of Preston Highlands Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. On this podcast, I'll be addressing several questions that members of our congregation have sent in regarding the sermon I preached last Sunday. If you want to listen to previous sermons or send in a question yourself, go to PrestonHighlands.org. In our church, we're in the middle of a series on the church, what it is and what we're supposed to be doing, what we're supposed to be about. And last Sunday, I preached on the church's good works. My main text was Galatians 6.10, where Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. In the sermon, we considered what types of good things we might do. We learned that in the Old Testament, Israel was called to care for four groups of people, widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. We considered various ways we, in modern-day America, can do good or do justice to the vulnerable in our society. I tried to argue that though there are countless ways we can do good, In our society, countless ways we can help the weak, perhaps the best good that we can do in our day and time is to work and pray for the end of abortion. In the sermon, I also talked about how as those who care about the sanctity of human life, we as Christians should be the first to step in and care for children who would have otherwise been aborted. This means fostering and adoption. Christians should be on the front lines in foster care and adoption ministries because we believe, of all people, we believe that every single life is precious and valuable to God. What I'd like to do now is address several of the questions that came in regarding the sermon on the church's good works from Sunday. Several of our folks sent in questions. I'm going to go through five of them as quickly as I can, leaving many things unsaid, I'm sure. Question number one was this. One of the ways in your sermon that sounded like a good opportunity to help the weak of our society is by moving into neighborhoods that the oppressed or marginalized live. However, these places tend to be high crime areas. How can one think through the obvious opportunity that is found in serving by living among these people while at the same time potentially putting your family at risk from the high crime? This is an excellent and important question, especially, I think, if you're married and have children. And I'll get to that in a moment. I'll first start with a we might call a cliche that has been said a lot and uh, it bears repeating here. It's often said safety is an illusion. (laughs) Safety is an illusion. What does that mean? Well, it means that terrible things can happen anytime, anywhere to anyone. (laughs) It means that we're never truly, fully, completely safe. It means that We'll never be anywhere in the world where nothing bad can happen to us. So we we, we need to get that principle kind of on the, the bottom floor, the ground level, and then build from there. 
Secondly, we need to remember that God promises to protect his people. Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The Lord's presence is with his people, protecting, preserving, watching over. The Lord loves and promises to protect his people. So that's perhaps the first level on top of the foundation of safety as an illusion. And thirdly, though, to keep building up, I would say that love always involves risk and sacrifice. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So love involved sacrifice for Christ. Love will involve sacrifice for us. It may mean that we live in a place we wouldn't prefer to live or want to live, or we a place we deem safer than other places. Love always involves risk and sacrifice. And then fourthly, though, as we keep building, I want to say something specifically to husbands. Um, I think this is an important question for single people and, and even couples without children. But especially, I want to say a word to husbands who have children. Husbands, we are called to protect our wives and children. We are given the duty and responsibility of protecting our wives and children. So, husbands, as you think through where you should live for the glory of God and the spread of the gospel and the, the building up of communities that are in so much need, as you think through where you should live, make sure you're on the same page with your wife about where you live. Make sure you're on the same page with your wife about where you live. The comfort level of your wife is one of the ways, perhaps the main way, that God will lead you in this. For five years, Susie and I decided to live in what some would call a rough area. Our parents on both sides thought it was an unsafe place to live. There was crime, drugs, and poverty all around us. But the Lord protected us. The Lord watched over us. And we were able to meet and minister to lots of people in so much need in Jesus' name. And I wouldn't do it over again in any other way. Now, we don't want to make foolish decisions and intentionally put our families in harm's way. Even missionaries leave war zones. So what do we do? Well, we pray for wisdom. We talk, husbands, we talk at length with our wives. We decide what level of risk we're comfortable with. We commit to the cause of love for the weakest and the least for the sake of Christ. And we pray for wisdom and we walk by faith for the cause of love. And we trust that the Lord will be our protector, our shield, and our defender. Second question that came in 
from the sermon is this. For single people that have a passion for adoption, what can they do to serve this cause? Great question. First, they can pray for ways to serve adoptive families and adoption agencies. They can look for ways, find ways to serve adoptive families, families who've adopted, and adoption or fostering agencies around town. They can give money to them. They can volunteer their time for them. If they know an adoptive family in their church or in their circle of friends and family, they can offer to babysit for free. They can take food over, take clothes, take school supplies. They can do any number of physical, tangible things to bless those families. One final thing they can do is they can start praying for a spouse with the same passion. They can pray that God would provide them with a husband or a wife who also has a passion for adoption so that when the time is right, they might have the same heart and the same drive to care for the orphan together as a married couple. Question number three, should we vote only for pro-life candidates? Should we vote for only pro-life candidates? Not necessarily. If a Christian votes for someone because they're pro-choice, then that's a problem. If a Christian votes for a candidate because they believe that abortion is okay, then that is an unchristian belief, an unchristian conviction. In fact, that person would not be eligible to be a member in our church. Christians must not support the murdering of children. I don't think that means that a Christian can never support a candidate who is pro-choice. I think there's room for a Christian to vote for a candidate who's, pro, who's pro-choice in spite of their being pro-choice. Just as any of us may vote for a candidate who's pro-life in spite of their views on any number of things that we don't agree with. Now, look, we all know there's disagreement here on this issue amongst Christians some of the pastors and writers that I look up to the most and have benefited from the most disagree on their approach to this. Paul says in Romans 14, 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In verse 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And in verse 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So as we think about this issue, this highly contentious issue, we should be diligent to think carefully about it and come to a conclusion, be convinced in our own, our own minds and have reasons for why we think what we think and trust that those reasons are based in the word of God and convictions and not just preferences so that this, this conviction is proceeding from faith and not just preference or political party allegiance. 
And then as we do that, we may end up disagreeing with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as we disagree, we must learn to disagree in ways that make for peace and mutual upbuilding, using this issue as a test for faithfulness. I think is unwise, unfair, and ungodly. So, should we vote only for pro-life candidates? Not necessarily. I think there's room for a Christian to vote for a candidate who's pro-choice in spite of their being pro-choice. Question number four. When bad things happen to us, How do we get past them and truly focus on doing good works? In other words, when something in my life isn't going the way I want and we go through these phases in which we're wondering why God is doing what he's doing, it often takes us a while to fully get back on our feet and start serving again. What should we do in those times? Well, first, I would argue that doing good works, even when we aren't in a good place, Is one of the best medicines for our souls. There's blessing in giving ourselves to others out of love. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20, 35. When we serve others during times of personal trial or pain or problems, we're given a joy and a sense of purpose and a sense of fulfillment that we wouldn't have otherwise. Serving others in spite of our pain helps us get our eyes off of us and onto others and onto God. Navel gazing can often lead to paralysis. Look, we should give time. We should seek help for our issues. We should do that. But if we're consumed by our stuff and what's going on in our life and in our hearts, we may miss one of the main ways God wants to heal our hearts. God wants to bless us as we bless others, no matter how we feel. Again, serving others, doing good works, even when we aren't in a good place, is a really good medicine for our soul. Also, the evil one wants to paralyze us with shame over things we've done, things done to us. But remember, Jesus carried our shame to the cross. All of our shame was nailed on the cross where Jesus died a shameful, embarrassing death in our place so that through faith, we can live in the freedom and joy of God's accepting and affirming love for us. In times of personal sin and darkness in my life, Micah 7, 8, and 9 has been a constant prayer. Micah 7, 8, and 9 says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. The Lord wants to raise us up out of our darkness and use us to reflect the light of his love to the world. This light is all the brighter when it shines through weak 
and frail and pain-filled and problem-filled lives. When we live for the glory of Christ and do good works in the name of Christ, even when we don't feel like it, the light of Christ shines brightly through us. God gets much glory when we keep doing good, no matter how we feel, no matter how things are going. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, without qualification, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's Matthew 5, 16. So the Lord wants to raise us up out of our darkness and use us to reflect the light of his love to the world for his glory, even while we try to get a footing and get our bearings and find healing and work through problems and pain in our own lives. The fifth and last question for our time together today is this. What does God think about our failure to respond to the opportunities that arise? Maybe the opportunity came and went before we even realized it was there. Maybe we see what we think might be an opportunity, but it vaporizes while we're trying to decide exactly what God wants us to do. Or maybe we rebelliously refuse to do what we know God is asking us to do. I think the best place to start here is a quick story. When I was in Zambia on a mission trip several years back, I was rooming with this old wise pastor and I'd been offered an opportunity to stay there and work as a teacher and professor at this Bible college. And I was really wrestling with that. You know, what should I do? Should I, should I pursue that? Should I continue pursuing uh, pastoring a church back in America? And I remember what that old wise pastor told me one evening. He said, not every opportunity is an obligation. Not every opportunity is an obligation. So what does God think about our response to the opportunities to arise? What does he think about us not responding to the opportunities to arise? Well, first off, not every opportunity is an obligation. Do good to everyone, Galatians 6.10. Do good to everyone as you have opportunity. Doesn't mean you must do good to everyone in every opportunity. It doesn't mean you must see every opportunity to do good. You can never miss an opportunity. You must know exactly what to do in every opportunity. It doesn't mean any of that. So on the one hand, it's true. Sometimes we'll completely miss opportunities to do good. We just won't see them until it's too late. Sometimes we won't know what to do when we do see them. The opportunity will pass us by before we can figure out what we're supposed to do. God is gracious in this. He isn't a harsh taskmaster. He's a patient father. We aren't called to save the world. Jesus is the only Messiah. On the other hand, if there's something that we know we should do and we fail to do it, then yes, I think that's displeasing to the Lord. When I was offered that opportunity to stay in Zambia and teach at this Bible college, that, that wasn't something that I knew I should do. There was no moral imperative, no clear command of Scripture I was supposed to obey. It was an opportunity 
that I was wrestling with. It wasn't clear that I should do it. But if something is clear, we know we should do it and we fail to do it, then yes, I think it's displeasing to the Lord. For example, last weekend, Susie and I planned to take the Christmas lights down at our house. I ended up getting home before she did on Saturday. My flesh wanted to take those extra few hours and make a fire in our living room, curl up in a blanket, read a book, and take a nap. But I knew what I needed to do. It wasn't ambiguous. It wasn't lost on me what I should do. We had made a plan. I knew what needed to be done. I had the time. I had the ability. So by God's grace and because I'm an amazing husband, I went out and took down the lights and my wife was happy. So I think that the Lord was pleased because I knew what I should do and I had the opportunity to do it and I followed through and I did it. Had I chosen my selfish desires over serving my wife in that moment, I don't think the Lord would have been pleased. It's not always that clear, of course. It's not always that clear what we should do. But when it is, we must do the thing we know we must do. For example, if you're with a friend for lunch or coffee and you know you haven't shared the gospel with them or asked them if you could pray for them in a long time, you should do that. Not doing that. I think is displeasing to the Lord. You're losing an opportunity to minister to someone in Christ's name. If one of your friends is really struggling and you choose to play video games rather than go be with them, that would not be pleasing to the Lord. When things are clear, when we know what we should do and we don't do it, then it's not pleasing to the Lord. But again, we serve a gracious God, a patient Father, a Christ whose blood covers all of our sins and shortcomings and failures. We aren't called to save the world. Praise God. Jesus is the only Messiah. We can't do all the good that needs to be done. But as we have opportunity, as God makes those opportunities clear, and as God gives us time to do them, ability to do them, may God help us to do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Well, that's all for this episode of Wednesdays in the Word. Thanks for sending in your questions. If you want to listen to previous sermons or send in a question, go to PrestonHighlands.org. Until next week, may God use all of us for His glory in this generation. <laughs>